Welcome to the Bloomberg Markets Podcast. I'm Paul Swinney, along with my co-host, Bonnie Quinn. Every business day, we bring you interviews from CEOs, market pros, and Bloomberg experts, along with essential market-moving news. Find the Bloomberg Markets Podcast on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen to podcasts and on Bloomberg.com. Well, it is time to have a look at precious metals. And by that, we're not really talking Bitcoin, although Bitcoin itself is getting more precious by the day. Let's bring in Everett Millman, precious metal specialist with Gainesville Coins. Let's begin, though, with a traditional special metal, and that would be gold, Everett. We saw it rise plenty, even though, you know, it, it wasn't quite obvious what it was rising on. What are the risks out there that people are, are using gold to hedge for? Well, thanks for having me on. Um, as we've seen, volatility has been a central part of the gold trade recently. Uh, I think the return of risk-on sentiment has robbed gold of some of its appeal. And in the short run, we should expect um, some more volatility with thinner trading volumes this week with the Thanksgiving holiday. But once the dust settles on the vaccine news and this protracted election transition, I believe that the attention of the gold market will return back to the fundamentals, and that mainly means the Fed um, and other central banks, in fact. We've seen that the ECB has come out and reiterated its commitment to supporting markets. Um, Beijing just recently sold its first negative-yielding bonds, and this is about the most dovish that the Fed, Federal Reserve has been in a generation. All of that leads me to believe that currencies are going to take a hit going forward. Um, it seems like a pretty reasonable expectation that the dollar will slump a bit heading into next year and beyond, and that's rather positive for commodities as a whole. Uh, another development that we all know 2020 has been a rather strange year for markets. There's no denying that. And one aspect of that is that the gold market has really shrugged off any seasonality. Um, any of the normal seasonal flows have really been ignored. Um, and as I said, I think as the news calms down a bit in the coming weeks that we will actually see seasonality re- reassert itself. So that means uh, the traditional wedding season in India and the fact that in a few weeks we have the Chinese Lunar New Year coming up. All of that signals that we're going to see a resurgence in physical demand for gold coming from the east. So it's interesting, uh, Everett, just looking at gold here, spot gold up about 21% year to date, but it feels kind of range bound here. You know, we Is there a call here where gold gets to back up to $2,000 uh, an ounce? Absolutely. I think that it's the gold bulls will have to be patient for that. Um, there is a lot of noise and a lot of stuff obviously going on over these next few weeks, but um, you know, when you look at some of the sales numbers from like the United States Mint, they're approaching 1 million ounces of total gold sales for the calendar year. That's already about five times higher than we saw for all of 2019. So from a cyclical perspective, I believe we're in the early innings of another bull market for commodities generally. And uh, if gold, you know, has maybe lost some of its safe haven appeal, Uh, I would point to its role as a bet against the dollar or really a hedge against that potential paradigm shift in the dollar status. Uh, We've seen this continued trend where economic power and trade supremacy is tilting more toward China and the East than it really ever has. And what you find is that in that region of the world, those countries are rather united in finding a more neutral reserve asset as a central part of monetary policy. Uh, That could be really anything other than the hegemonic U.S. dollar, but in this case, it's typically gold. 
And that does have profound implications for the next 20 to 25 years of economic history. Uh, The last time we saw a meaningful realignment of what you might call global dollar policy was more than 35 years ago with the Plaza Accord. And I'm not alone in thinking that some similar adjustment of that arrangement or a reset, if you will, is going to be necessary in the coming decades. Based upon the current macro trends that we're seeing, it's a fairly reasonable assumption that whatever that realignment looks like with respect to the dollar, um, it's likely to be rather positive for gold. So to answer your question, you know, gold really is uh, behaving as a hedge against any sort of currency weakness, the dollar included. So uh, who these days considers Bitcoin a precious metal? <laughs> well, as you said at the top, it's, it's getting more precious by the day, isn't it? Um, it's not entirely surprising to me to see Bitcoin getting a lot more attention and a lot more hype now for many of the same reasons I just described with gold. Um, there is sort of a generational or cyclical shift going on in monetary policy, and Bitcoin offers some alternative to uh, the standard dollar as the global reserve currency. Now, I don't mean to suggest that it will topple the dollar uh, in the next few months here, or even maybe in the next two or three years, but it really does deserve the attention it's getting because we're in uncharted territory uh, as far as central bank policy goes. So I think Bitcoin will continue to get attention. It will continue to absorb some of these alternate dollar or alternate currency bets that investors are making. Hey, Everett, about uh, 30 seconds here. Spot silver, I see, is up 32% year-to-date. That kind of gets lost in some of the discussions here. What's the call on silver here? Right. Silver has maintained some positive momentum. Um, It benefits from the fact that it is partly an industrial metal. So as we've seen with copper rallying, uh, silver has held up a little bit better than gold. The main thing I'm watching with silver has been some instability in Latin America, Um, I think Peru is on its third president in the span of about a week. Um, So many of the major silver-producing countries in Latin America are seeing some political instability, some unrest that could affect the silver supply and drive prices higher going forward. Everett, thank you so much uh, for joining us. We always appreciate chatting with you, getting your thoughts on all things on the precious metals side of the business. Everett Millman, precious metal specialist for Gainesville Coins, uh, based in Gainesville, Florida. Well, it is time to bring in Banker to the World, Bill Rhodes, to talk to us a little bit about what exactly is happening virtually this year. And given that we're just off the G20, where better to start than at the G20? Bill, what, what were the conversations that sort of struck you that were taking place at the G20 this year of all years? Well, first of all, Lonnie, it's very good to be with you and Paul again. Uh, this meeting was unusual in the sense that uh, it was the first one chaired by an Arab member of the of the group of 20, uh, Saudi Arabia and Riyadh. Obviously, it was done virtually. And the whole idea here was to concentrate on, on COVID, uh, pandemic, uh, and the fallout on the world economy. Because the first one of these was held by George Bush Jr. Uh, at the time of the, uh, the great uh, uh, economic uh, recession to try and see what the economic response could be. So what was covered here was basically uh, the economy. Uh, They got into climate change, uh, and obviously uh, what could be done about speeding up vaccines and making sure they were equally distributed around the world. Uh, And uh, the whole question of world trade, given 
how the economy of the world is going. Uh, but there were no specific new, uh, let's say, initiatives put forward here. Bill, what's the role of China uh, in kind of the global discussion these days uh, as relates to the G20 and, and, and other forums? I have a very important uh, question, Paul, because the only economy uh, member in the sense of, of membership that in the group of 20 who has an economy that's going to grow is China. Uh, all of the others, including the United States and Europe, will be in negative GDP for this year. And China will show a growth rate of 2%. And as the world's second largest economy and the only G20 country that's growing, uh, it uh, it is very, very important. And what they do there is very, very important. And one of the issues is that China is not a member of the Paris Club where you restructure official debt. Um, they would only agree to be an observer uh, there. And there's a lot of questions about the transparency of their loans to the emerging markets, which have been so hard hit by COVID. Uh, the estimate of the Kiel Institute is uh, China has something over 500 billion, 530 billion of outstanding loans to places like Africa, Southeast Asia, uh, parts of Latin America. And they haven't been willing to enter the longer term uh, discussions on, on, on debt relief. They did go along with the uh, debt relief program of the uh, that was put forward at the annual meetings of the IMF World Bank, which were extended for uh, six more months after the original year. But people like David Malpass and uh, uh, the IMF, <clears throat> David Malpass being the head of the World Bank, wanted to extend it for a full year. So uh, China is is doing less than it ought to be doing to help these emerging economies uh, really get back to normalization here by not willing to come forward on disclosure uh, as they should, as the other countries do, and be willing to restructure over longer periods of time uh, the debt that they've given out in the one belt, one road. So th that's all very well and good, but there's a lot of uncertainty out there right now. And, you know, can China afford to be so generous at a time when trade is up in the air? Trade with the United States, trade with Europe, trade with Britain. And, you know, it's it's not quite clear that China is through the woods either yet regarding COVID. Well, they have controlled it because obviously the system uh, of China is uh, is basically a dictatorship. And so they've been able to control the outbreak since the original one in Wuhan uh, at the end of last year, the beginning of this year. And so their economy has been able to come back much quicker and stronger than any of the other economies. Uh, the estimate of uh, the IMF is that uh, this year as a whole, 2020, the world economy is going to actually be in negative territory, 4.4%, which didn't even happen at the worst moment of the Great Recession. So that gives you a picture of the effect of COVID has had on, uh, on the world economy. And David Malpass estimates at head of the World Bank that during the course of this year, we'll have seen 100 million people pass into extreme poverty from the effects of the COVID, uh, COVID uh, virus. So, uh, Bill, what do you think a Biden administration means for 
uh, the U.S. in terms of its global role here. You came from uh, a time when, you know, the post, uh, you know, World War II, Cold War era where the U.S. really led an international community. Do you think we can get back to that? Do you think that's what uh, President-elect Biden wants? I think that's definitely what he wants to do. He already said that he will rejoin uh, the Paris Agreement on uh, climate change. Uh, we're the only major country that hasn't uh, signed off on it. We did originally under Obama, and then uh, it was withdrawn uh, by Trump. Also, I think he will uh, try and uh, arrange to get our problems settled with the World Trade Organization, which is very, very important, because we've been fighting there. So I think, in general, you'll see a much more conciliatory attitude vis-a-vis, uh, -vis, I think, our uh, allies in the, in the sense of trying to be more of a positive element in some of these uh, discussions that uh, are being held and trying to extract us from uh, this terrible pandemic and its terrible impact on the world economy. Bill, where would you be looking uh, right now for an example of a healthy economy? Well, I, I already mentioned that the economy that's going to grow, the only one in the G20, is China. Uh, but it's, they, I mean, you wouldn't call it a healthy economy either. Well, you? it's healthy in the sense of uh, <clears throat> having growth. And, of mm. course, uh, the consumer hasn't come back as they're looking for, but uh, their exports have uh, started to trend up. And so when you look around, they're about the only example, particularly of large countries, that you can point out to. And next year is going to be a difficult year also because so much will depend on the uh, vaccine being made available on large quantities uh, around the world. Uh, also, uh, hopefully, there'll be some progress on a treatment. Right. Um, Merck is working on something supposedly similar to uh, to Tamiflu for the flu, yep. but we're, we've still got a long ways to go here. Hey, Bill, thanks so much for joining us. As always, we always appreciate your perspective. Bill Rhodes, president and CEO of William R. Rhodes Global Advisors, also former chairman at Citibank. That was Ruth Dauber, Executive Vice President and President of Biopharmaceuticals Business Unit at AstraZeneca, speaking with Guy Johnson and Alex Steele about their vaccine. Uh, Vani, it's, a, it's the third major vaccine to come to the market, lower efficacy rates, but still um, a, a promising uh, drug at this point. Right, exactly. So an early analysis showing the vaccine stopped an average of 70 participants from falling ill. Uh, that rose to 90% for one of two regimens. So I think it would be good if we could get some analysis from someone who knows a lot about these things, Paul. And we can do that with our good friend Sam Fazelli. He's a senior pharmaceutical analyst for Bloomberg Intelligence. His day job, he's also the head of the uh, research business for Bloomberg Intelligence all across Europe. Sam, you know, we've, this is the third major company to bring um, a vaccine to market. Give us your thoughts on this AstraZeneca uh, Oxford uh, vaccine. Yep. Hi. Um, hi, Paul and Bonnie. So, I, I, you know, I've listened to what... Um uh, what Rod just said, Rod uh, Dobbers just said. So, um, I, you know, and I do think that it's very harsh to call a 70% effective vaccine um, useless because it's, it's not true. Um, even at that level, if that turned out to be the level of efficacy, and we don't know, they don't know, 
and that division between the kind of doses was is, is a little bit um, kind of academic at the minute until we know the the, the background to it. Um, that that's sufficient to help um, many many countries with a vaccine that um, is easy to ship and costs very little, relatively speaking. So it, it is it is a useful vaccine to have. It's just not it did, didn't show the same sort of efficacy which we worried about relative to. Um, that of Pfizer and um, BioNTech and Moderna. So just to finish that line, the question now is, does this mean that the vaccine's durability is also lower? That's something we have to wait and find out. Right, and we don't really know about the durability of any of the vaccines right now. Sam, explain to us, though, what exactly all of these numbers mean. So uh, the vaccine stopped an average of 70% of participants falling ill, which rose to 90% for one of two regimens. So if you used half a dose followed by a full one, that gave you a 90% chance. But then later on, we learned that the two full doses showed an efficacy of 62%. What does all this mean, that it depends on how you receive the, the dosage? Or it could just be um, uh, just random numbers. Mm. <laughs> the, the reality is that when you look at the other group that had the 90% efficacy, it's at the sort of numbers, Vonnie, if you remember, with Pfizer's interim at 32 cases and all that, we were very worried about getting a false read. And here we're at that sort of number in that group of people. We just need the company to do more analysis to give us more data. Why they chose to put this out today rather than, I think he said that in a few days' time they'll have more detail, why didn't they just wait until then? It's just a little bit beyond me. Mm. So, Sam, it seems to me, and I guess this is not surprising, but it's competitive here between these companies to, it seems like they're all trying to one-up each other and maybe talking up their particular uh, vaccine at the expense of others. So at the end of the day, I guess what I'm learning is every Monday morning, it seems it's not merger Monday, it's vaccine Monday. Uh, And these companies are really trying to, I guess, best position themselves. So this still is a commercial. It's a business, isn't it? It is. That's a good one, Paul. I just hope it's not next Monday because I'm hoping to take a half a day off. Um, (laughs) The the issue is... Funnily enough, for Astra, it's the least important of all. They're, not, they're selling this at cost. Pfizer, I get. BioNTech, I get. Moderna, I get. But they're selling this at cost. So what is the point of this? Is there some kind of political pressure on them? Because the UK and Europe are very dependent on this vaccine. Um, they don't have enough doses of the Pfizer, BioNTech, and Moderna vaccine contracted mm-hmm. for next year. The U.S. is different. The U.S. has enough of those two vaccines to cover all its population. So now here we are, perhaps they're being pushed to, to come up with a positive answer, too, because we need our people to feel good as they go to Christmas, that kind of thing. Well, the shot can be kept at refrigerator temperatures, which is great news. But also Astra expects to have more than 300 million doses ready to ship globally by the end of the first quarter of next year, with about 100 to 200 million doses being produced monthly. How does that compare with what can be produced by the other vaccine companies? Yeah, so I think um, uh, Pfizer have talked about um, 1.3 billion doses next year or just over a billion doses next year. Moderna are not far off into the into the high hundreds of millions. Frankly, we we all we know we, we we will not have enough vaccine doses next year to inoculate everybody around mm-hmm. the world, unless every vaccine worked. So it may end up being that 
you just take your Astra vaccine because you're paying very little for it. You get your population as much as you can vaccinated, assuming they come through the door, knowing that the vaccine is potentially less effective than some other vaccine at some point in the future. And then go back to them and say, okay, now we're going to give you the next one to give you a real hardcore boost. But that needs to be studied. So, Sam, I think, you know, at the beginning of this, when we started speaking to you and to other folks in the business, we were told to expect, hey, if you get efficacy efficacy rates of 60%, 70%, that's a really good number. And then we got, you know, those two, uh, Pfizer and and the uh, the other one, Moderna, with 90, 95%. Did we just get spoiled there? Is this still a good number? It's exactly the phrase I used in something else I'm writing, Paul. Spoiled. We are. We were spoiled. We would, nobody expected those, which is why we got the jubilation that we did. But the fact is that they're there, and we've kind of got corroboration from two independent companies using a similar technology that gives you that number. So you can get that for this virus. The point is, Astros didn't manage it so far. We just have to get more detail. Um, I'm not ready to completely beat them up for 70%. Um, Certainly, they they don't deserve to be beaten up for 70%. That's a pretty good achievement as it is. In the world of vaccines, um, you mentioned, you know, taking one and then taking another and and seeing how that would work. What happens when someone gets two different kind of vaccines for something? Is it automatically true that they will be more vaccinated? Um, Not necessarily. Um, and, And you do have to study it. So, for instance, there are two shingles vaccines out there, one that Merck Pharmaceuticals had for years, <coughs> excuse me, and then GlaxoSmithKline comes with a much more effective one later. Currently, you're advised to wait five years once you've had one, the Merck one, before you take the Glaxo one. But until somebody does a study and say, actually, look, you're fine, all we're doing here is giving you a booster, uh, you can't really be sure. So you, you, have to, you have to take that with a pinch of salt. Sam, give us the uh, the economics with these vaccines here. Uh, you mentioned Astra is going to do it, I guess, roughly at cost. They're not looking to make a profit. How does how are those decisions made? Is it a political thing, a regulatory thing, or is it just a business decision? No, no, no. Astra never had a vaccines business, and they they went into this. Could I say for the for the love of humanity okay. <laughs> and the fact that I think we all need to get our businesses back on track and and get the world back to normal. Um, they, they did, they, they, you know, they went out right at the beginning, just like Johnson & Johnson did. And Johnson & Johnson does have a vaccines business, not necessarily the biggest in the world, but it does have research in vaccine, at least. Um, so, you know, they both said the same thing. We're not going to make money on the pandemic, during the pandemic. So if there's a use potential for the vaccine after the pandemic, like an annual booster requirement, then we reserve the right, or this is not their phrases, I'm, I'm paraphrasing, we reserve the right to... Uh, make a profit. Pfizer and Moderna never did that. They just went out and said, okay, we're going to make money out of this. So, And Astra did take money from the governments, various governments, quite a bit of money, actually. Where will these companies compete internationally? So w- will some of them be more likely to distribute to you know, underdeveloped countries and, and poorer countries and some less so? You know, I really hesitate to say, to answer that question, because if you assume that at the end of the day, that the Astra vaccine is not as effective as the others, and you say, okay, well, let's have that in the developing world, that really is not a message that I would like to be talking to anybody about at the end of the day. But perhaps 
to say, here's a vaccine that I can get to you easily to every corner of your country with just a fridge or mm. refrigerator, sorry, um, then that's a different message. So we just have to be very careful with the messaging here. I think, unfortunately, it's going to be a lot of people are going to think twice about going to get the Astra vaccine. And, and I don't know what this will do to their recruitment in their um, in their U.S. trial. Yeah. So, Sam, the, the scientists, um, uh, you know, really are coming through with some some great science here, coming up with the vaccines. What are the companies that we should be looking at or, or thinking about um, in terms of producing and dis- distributing and you know storing these things? Are there some companies that do this, or do the AstraZenecas of the world and the and the Pfizer's of the world do that themselves? Yeah. Well, so you know, Paul, that that's not really my. Uh area in terms of but we know that corning is making a very special glass that's required for these glass vials and they would need billions of them right we know that um catalant and uh, emergent biosolutions and lonza are, are are manufacturing partners for many of these companies so they are all and i think if you look at those share price charts you'll see a similar response uh early on when these vaccines started working out so they will be the, the, the partners that will be um, helping manufacture. In terms of distribution, it needs to be, it's going to be government uh, work. And, you know, you've heard about the military getting involved in the U.S. You've heard about Walgreens and pharmacies getting involved in the U.S. So it's, it's a pretty broad group of companies and, and organizations that need to get involved. Sam, the, the researchers that have been working on these vaccines, do you know, and I'm not suggesting that you, you would, but just on the off, off chance that you do know, what they had been working on before and what we might now have to wait a longer time for because resources were switched to vaccine, you know, COVID yeah, vaccine a, production? That's a very good question. I think the researchers and many of the people who started working on this uh, are, are folks who are in the immunology, microbiology, virology background. And I think this is what they do. We do have a virus that's running amok in, in the world, and, and basically that, that's their bread and butter. They try and understand and, and solve those things. In terms of research, you know, it's less... The effects are... Secondary effects are lower diagnoses of diseases because people have not been able to go and see their doctors. Um, uh, you know, with these antibodies and things that are coming through with the requirements for IV infusions, you've got the issue with, um, um, uh, uh, you know, IV centers, infusion centers. Now, that's where cancer patients go to get their, uh, uh, their uh, drugs. You don't really want COVID-infected patients in there, too. So those are the side effects that are seeing. But from a research perspective, I don't think we're seeing anything diverted away from anything. Um, it's, just, it's just additional. Sam, do you think, I mean, I know when we, again, started talking to you about vaccines back in the day, several you know, months ago, you know, we were talking about four, five, six, seven years for a vaccine to kind of get through approval. And now we're looking at a much, much more compressed time frame here for the COVID vaccines. Do you think this will have a permanent change to how vaccines do get approved in the future, showing that it can be done on a quicker uh, time frame? Um, well, so I think, Paul, that we certainly are, have learned that you don't have to have those massive time frames. Everything was done in series. It is possible to get things done in parallel. But that does have a cost because the FDA and the regulators who get involved, that's one of the things back to Vonnie's question, 
they only have so much resources. If they're going to have to be doubling up resources on speeding something up, that means they're taking it away from something else. So, and I think we've, some of the companies have sensed that a little bit with regards to FDA responses. So does this change? We certainly have learned that we can do things quicker. And I believe that, that going forward, they, we will be learning to reduce those massive timelines, a lot of which is taken in regulatory, dare I say, bureaucracy, um, so that we don't, we don't spend so much time on, on just filling out paperwork. And that's obviously good for the companies and good for patients. Yeah, absolutely. So, so Sam, uh, you know, the numbers are rising all over. Tell us about Europe. I mean, we, we pretty much know what's happening in the United States. How bad is it across Europe? Where is it rising? Yeah, so in, in Europe, I think the majority of countries have turned it around. Um, France, where I live, has got below the 20,000 number. I mean, you, you get the odd days where you get a case count where somebody forgot to count something the day before or those kind of things. Um, but we, they've certainly turned the corner. The UK has, has turned the corner or, or plateaued. Uh, Belgium has turned the corner. I think Spain is plateauing. So most of the countries, the efforts they've spent, which is not shocking because it's a virus that gets transmitted when you and I meet face-to-face, we've reduced that. Therefore, thank God, the number of cases are falling. So it's all in the right direction. So, but I suspect that they'll be very careful when it comes to the so-called reopening. Hey, Sam, thanks so much for joining us. As always, we appreciate your expertise. Sam Fazelli, Senior Pharmaceutical Analyst for Bloomberg Intelligence. He also manages the European research business for Bloomberg Intelligence. And Vani, uh, we really appreciate getting Sam's insights here. Thanks for listening to the Bloomberg Markets Podcast. You can subscribe and listen to interviews at Apple Podcasts or whatever podcast platform you prefer. I'm Bonnie Quinn. I'm on Twitter at Bonnie Quinn. And I'm Paul Sweeney. I'm on Twitter at PT Sweeney. Before the podcast, you can always catch us worldwide at Bloomberg Radio.